Hey, how you doing? I got to tell you, I was nervous. Uh, the beginning of the week, I was uh, just curious as to what other pastors preach about the week after Easter. And I found that historically, though Sunday after Easter is the least attended service in the entire calendar year. So thank you for being here. I don't know uh, if it's for one of the other things happening uh, later on today, but if it's all right with you, when I call my dad later on this week and I ask him how his service was and he tells me and he asks me how my service was, I'm going to tell him that you came to hear me, if that's all right. Uh, thank you, thank you. And the other things are just bonuses. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it started when I was 10. I had a, a situation that happened. My dad was a worship pastor at Denver First Church of the Nazarene in Denver, Colorado. Huge church. His office was on the third floor of the office wings. And, uh, and I had this guy named Scott. He was a college student, and he decided that he was going to be my big brother. He decided, you've got two sisters, you don't have any guy friends, I'm going to be your big brother. And he basically took me under his wing, and I had a blast every Sunday seeing Scott. Scott was the kind of guy that would seek me out after the service, say, how was your week, how's school going, that kind of stuff. He was just the mentor that you want to have. Well, we were goofing off one Sunday, and I accidentally fell about eight feet, landed on my head, on concrete, in essence, crunching my vertebrae. And uh, from that point on, it was rough. It was rough, I'm not gonna lie. Um, there, there, I'd, I'd go through phases where I was fine, and then it'd be the littlest things. I'm reaching for milk, and I was like, and I can't move for like days. Um, it got so bad that around 2011, uh, 2010, 2011, I actually, if you remember the old Carol Burnett show with Tim Conway, you're the guy. <laughs> that's kind of how I was walking. It was really, really pathetic. Um, I, was, uh, I was reduced to living a life of wearing Crocs. Um, no matter where I was, at work, at church, they were very kind to accept my, uh, my fashion sense during that time. Uh, but it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, it got worse and worse. Finally, I blew my L5. I was on 27 pills a day to take care of pain, to take care of my brain and my back not speaking to each other to help me out. My blood pressure was elevating up to the 160s area, over 120s area. Um, and finally, the doctor said, it's time for surgery. To which I was like, thank you. I was so excited. So we go in for surgery, they set me up, they do everything, they wheel me out, and Jen um, told me, you know, I'm just going to text a few people, let them know how we're doing, email a couple people, then I'm going to go get coffee, and I'll be back and waiting for you when you get back in your room. So she texts a couple people, makes an email or two, and stands up to go get some coffee, and the doctor's already coming back in the room. Literally... 30 minutes later, my back surgery was done. It was crazy. I woke up, and where 30 minutes before, 
on a scale of one to 10, I would have put it at a nine or a 10 of pain, even with the medicine going through my veins. I was at like a one or a two. Instantly, it had worked. Um, They said, you can leave as soon as you can go to the bathroom by yourself and walk down the hall by yourself. And so in less than two hours, I was walking to the car with Jen and we were heading home. And that began a new normal. From age 10 all the way up to, I don't know how old it was, 30-something, life was full of pain, life was hard. And then all of a sudden, in almost an instant, new normal. We're starting a new series called The New Normal. And, you know, six weeks ago we began, we had a Lent service. It was beautiful, and, and many of you were getting the Selly updates every day, a different thing to, to consider during Lent. Um, we, we stopped singing resurrection verses um, in our services until Easter, and then we had a huge celebration last week. And it was awesome, wasn't it? And then for many of us, Sunday afternoon rolls around and back to normal. I can eat chocolate again. I can, uh, you know, drink soda again or whatever it was that you were doing. I could stop getting those texts at 10 a.m., which I found out why they were going out so late. And it was a silly little problem that that I had, and I apologize for that. They were supposed to go out earlier, um, but Philip Allred showed me that with the time change that happened during Lent, all of a sudden our Ema, our Lents were going out. Never mind, you don't care about that. Uh, <laughs> so, we're starting this new normal. We have, we have this Easter event, and the thing I kept coming back to is if we truly believe in the power of the resurrection, If we truly believe that Christ was crucified, dead, buried, and God raised him from the dead, shouldn't we have a new type of normal? How can we go back to living the way we were pre-death, resurrection, and that kind of stuff? We need a new type of normal. Shouldn't, if, if, if the cross is the epicenter of human salvation, shouldn't it send shockwaves through our lives even today? And so we're going to start this series. We're going to be spending a couple weeks talking about um, new faith today. And we're going to also hit new hope and new love over the next couple of weeks. And we hope that uh, you'll come back and join us for the journey as we learn what it means to be new and have a new normal in light of the cross and the resurrection. And we're going to spend a lot of our time in the next couple of weeks in the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at chapter 1. Just to give you some background, um, most people say there are two main themes of 1 Peter. One is suffering, and the other is Christ-likeness. And our passage today hits both of those. Basically, to summarize This is what most people feel Peter's thinking is. We are called to be holy. Amen? And this holiness leads to hope. And this hope that we have is only found in one person. 
Jesus Christ, who brings us salvation. And the salvation is an individual salvation that we have, but it is also, in Peter's view, a corporate salvation. Um, You know, Peter is known for being the founder of the church. He was very big on, we are the people of God. We are the bride. It was corporate. And then finally, what's the last slide, uh, Danny? The church is called to be the body of Christ in the world, which is not only her mission, but it is often also the source of much of her suffering. So Peter lays out this this dual thing, suffering and Christ-likeness, and he does a fantastic job of having his proofs and his background. In fact, the book of 1 Peter has 105 verses. Out of 105 verses, there are 82 references or allusions to something said in the Gospels. And there are 41 references or allusions to something said in the Old Testament. So almost every verse he's saying, he's either quoting scripture or he's saying something that the people in those days would have said, oh, that reminds me of this. Oh, that makes me think of this. And if that's true, then that's how I apply it into this. So Peter is totally entrenched in in teaching about this suffering and this Christ-likeness, and he's doing it through the Gospels and the Old Testament. Now, um, we have people in the Bible, and, and we kind of characterize them as things. John, you would say the primary theme is love. Paul, most people would say the primary theme is grace. Peter, most people would say the primary theme that he goes for is faith. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this new faith, faith in God, faith in Christ, faith that the work he did on the cross is complete. So let's look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And I'm going to read it, and I'll let you follow along. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Can you hear the faith language? I mean, he, he literally says it three times, but he's also talking about though you don't see, you believe. And so he's alluding to faith through this entire passage. And I sit there, and as I was reading, I was like, wow, this is a rock-solid dude. This guy has some serious faith. 
And yet as we've been going through Lent and as, as we've been going through the series in the upper room, my mind started going to things where I thought, this always hasn't been Peter's thing. He always hasn't had the type of faith that he's speaking about now. So I just wanted to take a minute. Let's, let's pull up this slide. This is just a timeline. Uh, on the top, you can see this is what's happening with Jesus. On the bottom, you can see this is what's happening with Peter. And you can kind of break it up into four sections. You've got what's happening in the upper room. Jesus is praying for Peter. He's telling him, you're going to deny me three times. Peter is adamant, no, that's not going to happen. But we know that that indeed does happen. We got this section in Gethsemane where, where Peter, at his friend's darkest hour, is sleeping. And then, in an effort to be courageous, he starts swinging a sword and cuts off a servant's ear. Now, I've always wanted to know, what was he aiming for? That cannot be, watch this, wham, you can't hear, gotcha. It's like, it's like, Bad faith and bad aim. It's just, just, it was just terrible. So we have this section. And then we have this, this larger section where we have what's happening to Jesus in the Sanhedrin, him being killed, buried, and the resurrection. And we see this, this scared Peter with little faith who actually does what Jesus told him he would do, denies him three times. He follows from a distance. He doesn't want to get too close. He's just kind of distancing himself from the situation. And it ends with him fleeing the city, weeping. But after the resurrection, I love this section. I love how the the passage says, I want you to go and tell the disciples and Peter. They wanted to be sure Peter knew that Jesus had had been resurrected. He runs to the tomb, and then he goes back to his old lifestyle, his old normal, which is being a fisherman. And we find him, after seeing the tomb, after seeing Jesus, eight days later, he's back to what he was doing back to life as normal, pre-Jesus. And then we have this last section where Jesus appears to Peter and he restores him. And we have that scene where he says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Care for my sheep. And, And he's restoring Peter and commissioning him to look after the brothers and sisters in Christ, which is the church. different Peter. This, this, is, this is not the Peter that we're reading his words, and yet that's exactly what happened. Somehow in this last section, he goes from being this coward Peter with old faith, with little faith, and he becomes this giant of faith that is preaching about a new hope that we have because of Jesus. So let's, let's go back and let's break down some of this stuff. First part says, Praise be to God the Father, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, soil, or fade. Now, I love, um, I was reading this week, and, and a lot of people said that this was a very, this living hope was a very unusual thing for a Hebrew person to say. Um, a Jewish person would more likely have said, we have an undying hope. Not we have a living hope. We have an undying hope. It's we are captive, but we have an undying hope that we will be liberated. We have no land, but we have an undying hope. It's this, it's this woe is me, I hope it gets better in the future. This undying hope. And yet Peter says the exact opposite. He says, no, no, no. We have a living hope. Because our Messiah, who was crucified, is alive and living, we have a hope for now and for the future. This isn't some woe is me type of faith. This is a faith that is strong that says we have living hope. It's breathing. It's moving in our hearts. It's moving in our people. We have this hope within us. See, for, for Peter, the cross isn't a crucifix with a dying Jesus on it. The cross is an empty cross. For, for Peter, the tomb isn't a crypt with a body in it. The tomb is an empty tomb. And because of that, we have hope. Because of that, our hope is sustained by our faith in this act of God. Going on, the inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That, that word to be kept, that, that when it says your inheritance is being kept for you, that's a military term. That, 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 that speaks of military might, a garrison, a group that is protecting. And the people in this text would remember a story of Elisha in the Old Testament where he's, he has an army coming against him and his servant says, what are we going to do? And he says, God, open my servant's eyes so that he may see that you, your heavenly host, is surrounding us even now. This, this inheritance that we have is being guarded. It's being guarded. So, so that's why we can look at the words of Jesus and he says, don't store up treasures here. You can't, you can't guard this. You can't keep this. You can't take it with you. This is exposed and this is worthless. Instead, store up treasures where it is kept for you, where it is secure, where it is being held for you as an inheritance until you arrive there. Let's move on. In all this, you greatly rejoice. This is the part that there's always a twist. This is the part that gets me. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That you rejoice greatly, that gets me. Um, because 
we know what happens to Peter. We know what happened through history. If the scholars are correct, and this book was written around 65 AD in the 60s, not the 1960s, but in the 60s, then if that's the case, Nero would have been in charge at that point. This is the Nero that many people feel actually is the one that started the fire of Rome. He wanted to burn it so that he could build something that he had planned. And he's the one that, you know, you always see the cartoons with the emperor fiddling while Rome is burning. This is that Nero. This is that Nero that would have Christians on stakes and light them in his garden to give light to him at night. This is the Nero that would eventually have Peter crucified. And so to hear we greatly rejoice even though we may have suffered. That gets me. You know, I, I sit there and think, would I have that kind of faith? There was a research done, and it was, it was a survey that was done for inner city um, impoverished people. And they asked them, what is your favorite hymn? I know, great question, right? It's like, I'm suffering and you want to know my song selection. Thank you. Uh, but the favorite hymn of the people that are in the most oppressed sections of America, their favorite hymn was not surprisingly Amazing Grace. That doesn't surprise me. What surprised me was I expected their favorite verse to be, which is the follow-up question, when we've been there 10,000 years, you know, when it's all over, won't this be great? But the, the verse that was most meaningful to people that were currently hurting was actually the third verse. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. It, it, it's like the, the survey confirmed what Peter was saying. It's like, we may have trials and troubles now, but we have, if we have faith in our risen Messiah, there is hope beyond now, and our God will sustain us through the troubles and the trials. See, old faith can't sustain you that way. Old faith will cause you to give up and think you can't do it and feel like it's too much for you. It takes a new faith to get you through the struggles that you're facing today. And so that's why Peter is calling us to a new faith. Let's keep going. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. That end result, if you go back to the Greek, it means it's completed. It's over. We don't have to worry about the salvation of our souls. When we have faith in Jesus, it is complete. Interestingly, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Finished is the same 
comes from the same root word that this says here. It is complete. It is perfected, is another way that they would translate, it is finished with Jesus on the cross in John 19, which goes with Matthew 5, 48, when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this perfect, completed, it's finished kind of faith is sustaining us, and it is the salvation of our souls. In Hebrews, when it says, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher, it's done. There is not a question about will things turn out right. Jesus, on the cross, the risen Savior, and the ascension shows us it is finished. Amen? So we can have this new kind of faith. No other God can do this. I love a C.S. Lewis quote said, we trust not because a God exists, but because this God exists. That's why we have faith. Not because a God exists, but because our God, Yahweh, exists. And I was thinking about this faith that he has, and I, and I thought of the, one of the first things that said to Peter in the upper room, kind of as bookends, when Jesus says, Simon, Satan has asked to shift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers, the church. I wonder if I wonder if Jesus knew that in the upper room Peter was possibly living in an old type of faith. I'm willing to give up my job for you. I trust you that you're a good guy. That's good faith. But it's old faith. And in the garden I trust you enough to follow you here, but this army coming against us doesn't seem like a good plan, Jesus. I've got faith, but it's old faith. Or during the time where he's denying Jesus, I wonder if, I wonder if he thought about his faith. If he thought about wow, Jesus was just praying that Satan wouldn't shift me and my faith would stay strong, and look what I've done. But here's the part I love. When Jesus goes to him on the seashore and reinstates him, I feel like all of a sudden, for the first time, Peter didn't just see Jesus as a good guy, a good teacher, a good Messiah, a guy with a good plan, a guy that God could raise from the dead, I feel like maybe for the first time, Peter saw Jesus as the one who could truly forgive him. See, my dad used to say, it's easy for me to believe that God can forgive you because God is love. God loves everyone. Why wouldn't he forgive you? doesn't matter what you've done. But it's much harder for me to say, 
God can forgive me. Because see, I know what I think. I know what I say. Where I go, what I do, what I look at. It's easy for me to trust God, this old type of faith, that, that God loves you and will forgive you. But it takes a new type of faith to step out and say, wow, in spite of everything you know about me, Jesus, you love me, you forgive me, that's, that's new faith. And that's what we're called to. We're called to this new faith that says, I can forgive you. We're called to this new faith that believes it when Jesus says that. I think of the story of uh, Lazarus when, when Mary says, oh, if you'd only been here, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. Lazarus would still be alive. And I think, old faith, if you would have been here, you could have done something. And Martha says, I believe that Lazarus will raise again someday, but not today. Old faith. But Jesus doesn't let them accept old faith. And, and, and I love what he says. He says, no, no, no. You're, you're asking me to do this resurrection thing. No, I am the resurrection. I am the life. It's in my nature. This is what I do. I take dead things and I bring them to life. I take discarded things and I reuse them and I revitalize them. I make all things new. I want to establish a new normal in you. It's what I do. It's who I am. If you need life, I am life. If you need resurrection power, I am resurrection power. That's what Jesus is saying to us today. You know, I, I think four years of CR, and what a great thing. And yet I, I, sit, I sat there this week and I thought, we're kind of all in a recovery program in a sense. I mean, didn't Jesus come to seek and save the lost? Doesn't that kind of include us? We are being recovered. We are being transformed. We are being given a new normal through Christ Jesus. And that definitely is worth celebrating. Amen? So as we close today, I, I want to read a poem. Is that okay if I read a poem to you? We don't have a lot of poetry from the pulpit. Can I read you something? Thank you, thank you. I got one all right. The rest of you can zone out for the next couple of minutes. Not, not a poetry fan. Come on. It's culture. Pastor Stephen Furtick at Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was watching a podcast of about a year ago of his, and he read this poem, and it blew me away. And as I was watching it, I was like, that's exactly what we're talking about. See, a new kind of faith requires that I believe that Jesus came for me, that Jesus died for me. It takes a new type of faith to believe that. And so he said this, he said this poem. I'm going to read it to you, and I need your help. 
The title of the poem is, So God Sent a Savior. And at the end of each refrain, it has that line. So when I say, so God, I need you to help me say, sent a savior. You got it? Let's practice it once. So God, yeah, awesome. All right, let me read this. So God sent a savior. And in the fullness of time, God looked down on the crown jewel of his creation and he said, his people are the apple of my eye. But somehow they managed to screw everything up all the time. So I'm going to have to go down there and fix this thing myself. So God sent us safe. And, and God said, the man I've made has made a mess of my image. He's distorted my intentions and diluted my instructions. Humanity has been reduced to naked shame, eyes wide open, beholding a once open paradise, now locked up tightly, unable to reenter because the rebellion reset the perimeters. So God said, I need somebody with nimble fingers, somebody who sows more than fig leaves, somebody who can seamlessly weave the broken hearts of humanity back to the loving purpose they were, they were created for, someone to silence the lies of all the snakes in their lives, someone whose mouth has never tasted the poisonous bite of forbidden fruit, someone to pull the tree of knowledge of good and evil up by its roots and carry it on his back. So God, God said, they need a chain breaker. The cries of my people in bondage are rising up before me and the sounds of their wailing have pierced the portals of heaven. So I'm sending a deliverer to put out, to put an end to their days of backbreaking brick making. God said, they need somebody who can deliver them from the dungeons, addictions, corners and caves, all the things that have made them enslaved. They need somebody who sees the dry ground clear through the sea of fear. Someone who won't just stretch out his staff, but will reach out with nail-pierced hands. So God sent a savior. God said they need a prophet, a messenger who means to take it, to make it abundantly clear that my God is Yahweh. When the small gods have failed, I need a smasher of bales. Somebody who can make a fool of every idol they've tried to lift their hearts to. God said, I need somebody who won't bow a knee to greed, who won't bow a knee to it's all about me, who won't worship status, position, or things, who can call down fire and then make it rain. Unafraid to taunt the enemy, proclaiming prophetically, turning the affection of my people away from what is worthless and back to my love. So God... God said, I need a rescuer, someone who won't board the first boat bound for increased convenience, who won't stall or flee. They need a rescuer with a heart like me, consumed with passion and abounding in love. God said, I need somebody to prepare a table in dark places, to invite the castaway and the thrown away, to let them know I am there even when they cause their own storms when they inflict their own pain, when they end up in the belly of their own self-imposed suffering, they need someone who never needs but always offers a second chance. Someone to plunder the depths of death and distribute the riches of my grace to the ends of the earth. So God, God said they need an overcomer. They need someone who has a clean closet that's skeleton-free, 
a story with no imperfections, a heart with no ill motives, someone with steadfast sincerity and relentless resolve, a perfect lamb with the kind of confidence that makes its bed in the midst of the lions, someone who can grab fear by the throat and render it powerless, who will shut the mouths of every liar, wield the hearts of kings and silence the roars of every enemy, someone who can pray prayers and sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane. So God, God said they need a water walker whose voice stills winds and waves, a man with perfect faith to narrate the rise and fall of chaotic conditions and to point the way through clouds of doubt. When the boat is breaking up and the storms are raging on and visibility is getting worse, they need someone steady on his feet, trained to tread the surface of the deep, someone who refuses to accept that walking is an activity reserved just for dry land, but believes fluid living and walking in faith go hand in hand, bold enough to place the ball of his foot onto the uncertainty of the water, a peace speaker with a firm grip, strong enough to catch the slipping, sinking soul and carry the one that wavers back to the boat. So God, God said, I need a perfect son with the skills to lead a search party for every runaway and renegade, somebody to retrieve and redeem all my lost sons and daughters, to remind the world that no matter what they've done, where they've been, no matter how long they've been in the pig's pen, they still have a chance to be called my kids. Somebody who knows how to throw a welcome back party for the prodigal, willing to light the grill and kill the calf in celebration of the one who still smells like the swine he slept with last night, willing to bear the rebellion of the world in a righteousness of his redemption. So God, stand with me. On the third day, God said, I need a grave robber. Somebody who can bear to be bruised by the knuckles and maligned by the heckles of sinful men that he himself created and stare back into their faces of stone with a compassion carved more deeply than the canyons that he constructed with a word and yet utter not a word, but be silent before the shearers like a sheep sent to the slaughter. Somebody who can be beaten beyond recognition and bear buried in a borrowed tomb and still get up with the presence of mind to fold the strips of linen that he was leaving behind. God said, I need a morning person to wake up after three days and stretch a little and then roll his own stone away. Somebody to change the game of hide and seek and say, don't come to this grave looking for me who will walk to the octagon and hand death its first and final defeat. God said, I need a hero, a conqueror who knows where death and hell keep the keys and has the power to shake them down and take them by force. The one who strips shame bare and exchanges it for grace. The one who shatters every shackle and the one who liberates. The one who revives lost passions for the greatness of his name. The one who redirects intentions, making every path straight. The one who descends into the depths and stares fear in its face. The one who walks beyond every doubt and against the wind and stands unafraid. The one who recovers sons and daughters and restores their rightful place. He is the resurrection. He is the life and he lives beyond the grave. Our God sent a savior and his name is Jesus. Amen. Sing with us. Let's celebrate that.